Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would so work among us now that it would be true to the deepest core of who we are that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, cause us to be people who know that you are everything and that nothing is worth being separated from you. Lord, cause us to feel what a treasure you are, how there is none like you. And then, Lord, give us eyes to see that those sins that tempt us and those behaviors that we so easily slip into are things that you cannot tolerate. And, Lord, make us people who are ruthless with our sin, people who are committed to, to living for you, not, not by means of our own works, not by means of our own virtue, but because of Christ, because he died for us, because he paid the penalty. Lord, cause us to seek holiness because we want to be in your presence. Be everything to us, Father, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 33. And as you turn there, I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. I want you to identify something, or maybe it's several things, in your heart that you know is sinful, something that you know that you are tempted to abandon God that you might have this. This is what all our, our sins offer to us. Our sins offer us some fleeting pleasure, some kind of enjoyment, some self-indulgence, some self-exaltation, something. But it's clear to us that if we take the bargain, we gain whatever it is that sin offers us at the cost of God, at the cost of fellowship with God. And I would invite you to, to, to identify what this is for you, what it is that draws you away, what it is that you know causes separation between you and God, and just let it sit there in your mind as we think together about this passage. We're going to be looking at Exodus 33, and as we approach Exodus 33, I want to briefly summarize the broader context of what we've seen to this point in the book of Exodus, and I want to put it in relationship with the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So as, as we saw when we walked through the, uh, the instructions for the making of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 31, the tabernacle is really like a small-scale replica of creation. And, and I think that Moses intended his audience to see similarities between the, 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 the tabernacle that Israel was instructed to build and the world that God built. So Moses intends these points of correspondence between, say, Genesis 1 and 2 and the, the instructions for the making of the tabernacle. And in the same way that the opening of Genesis 2 uh, contains the, the account of the first Sabbath, so also the account of the instructions for the tabernacle concludes at the end of Exodus 31 with uh, a, a passage dealing with the Sabbath. So there's this building followed by rest both at creation and in the instructions for the tabernacle. Also, right before that Sabbath in Genesis 1, we see the making of, of man, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. And, and similarly here in Exodus 31, you have these, uh, these two figures, Aholiab and Bezalel, who are like uh, the man who is to steward the creation as they as they work and keep, as it were, the tabernacle in, the, in doing their, their spirit-filled work in creating it. And, and beyond that, I think there's an analogy between the whole nation of Israel and Adam in the garden. And, and there, I would remind you of Exodus 4, 22 and 23, where the Lord said to Moses, Go and say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. 
So you have Adam in the creation, and now you have Israel with being given the tabernacle. And, and as we've said, as we've worked through this, in the same way that Adam sinned in the garden when the, the serpent brought the temptation and uh, the woman was deceived and then Adam willfully sinned, so also in Exodus 32, the nation of Israel, they sin with this golden calf. And, and so there's this parallel movement of the, the building and then the placement of the, the vice region of God in the new creation and then the defiling of that creation by means of the sin. And then there's also a parallel, I think, between the mercy that God introduces into the world when he speaks the promise of Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman would conquer the serpent and his seed and the intercession of Moses that we see here in Exodus 33. So I want to suggest to you that Moses here is, is like a, a type of Christ, the seed of the woman who would bring about reconciliation between God and man. That's what we'll see in this chapter. But before we look into the chapter, let me, let me just say that if you're here and you are not a Christian, you need someone to do for you what Moses does for Israel in Exodus 33. And, and our hope and prayer is that you will see that there is a new and better Moses, someone who, who has exceeded Moses, uh, as the author of Hebrews says. He has as much more glory than Moses as the builder of a house has of the house itself. And it, it's as though Christ is the superior Moses who brings about reconciliation between God and man in the way that Moses in this chapter is going to bring about reconciliation between God and man. So let's look together at Exodus 33. And in verses 1 through 6, we have the first unit here. And, and I think the center point of this unit is in verse 4. So I want to start by drawing your attention to what that verse says. Exodus 33, 4, it says, When the people heard this dis disastrous word, and the disastrous word is this, the Lord tells Moses, I am not going up among you. The Lord tells Moses, you take those people up on, on up into the promised land, but I am not going up among, among you. And in verse 4, they hear the disastrous word. And we need to let that word rest on us heavily. The disastrous word is, they are going to receive the promises of God, but they don't get God. They are going to inherit the promised land, but God is not going with them. That's the disaster. And in response to this, they mourn. Now, let's, let's go back up to verse 1, where the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. Okay, so they've been at Mount Sinai for a good long while now, ever since they arrived at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And they saw God come down in fire on the mountaintop, and he spoke the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And then they received the initial deposit of the Book of the Covenant, the initial deposit of law in Exodus 21 through 23. They had the... the, the the inauguration of the covenant by means of the sacrifices in chapter 24, and then they got the instructions for the tabernacle in 25 through 31. And while Moses was up on the mountain getting those instructions, the people were down at the foot of the mountain abandoning God, worshiping the golden calf. And now the Lord is saying, okay, go on. Go on up into the land of promise. Depart. Go up from here. You and the people, and notice how the Lord continues to speak to Moses, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is fulfillment of promise. I, I made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to keep the promise. Saying, and here it's almost like we have a quotation of, of Genesis 12, 7, to your seed I will give it. Uh, Genesis 12, 7, to your seed I will give the land. So, so there, there's, there's all this history that's being evoked here as, as these words are recounted. And then the Lord says in verse 2, as he has promised in, in Exodus 23, 20, and has just been stated at the end of Exodus 32 and verse 34, if you look there, the Lord tells Moses, but now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. And now here in Exodus 33, 2, he says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
So it's like the Lord is saying, go on up to the land. You're still going to get the promised land. And I'm going to send this angel, and he's going to ensure that you overcome your enemies. Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Now let's just think about these two clauses here. The reason I think it's referred to as a land flowing with milk and honey is because the rain falls on the land and it, it results in good pasturage and the cows are able to feed on the pasturage and so they're, they're nice, strong, healthy uh, cows that give off lots of milk. So the land is flowing with milk. And land that is flowing with honey is going to be land that can support lots of bees. So there's, there are lots of living things supported by this very fertile land. It's a land flowing. It's a good land. It's a great place to live. I'm going to keep the promise. I'm going to drive out your enemies. And I'm going to give you a good gift, the land of, the land of promise. Verse 3, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. And we've already read verse 4, how the people mourn in response to this. And no one puts on his ornaments. And then verse 5 really repeats verse 3. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And then verse 6, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. These ornaments are probably the ornaments that, uh, that they received from the Egyptians. You know, there was this free will offering. Uh, uh, well, not a free, they did take a free will offering for the building of the tabernacle. Uh, but when they came out of Egypt, it says that the people of Israel had plundered the Egyptians, and the Egyptians freely gave them their, their gold and silver and their earrings and so forth. And, and the word rendered plundered, when the people of Israel plundered the Egyptians in Exodus 3.22 and 12.36, is the same word translated by the ESV stripped here in Exodus 33.6. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their... It's almost as though Israel has been put in the place of Egypt, in the same way that the Egyptians were plundered, now the Israelites are they're stripping themselves of these ornaments the way, that the, the way they took that stuff from Egypt. Now, what's happening here, again, is the Lord is saying, I'll keep my word. I made this promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'll give you this good land and I'll drive out your enemies before them, before you. But you don't get me. And, and I just want to ask you, how would you respond? How would you feel if the Lord spoke that way to you? I hope and pray that all of us would want to respond the way the Israelites do in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word. I fear, I fear that there are some among us that would not hear this as a disastrous word. I'm afraid, and I, look, I'm a human being. I know what temptation to sin feels like. And I know what it, what it is like to feel. Oh, I'd love to have that. God wouldn't be such a great loss. I mean, isn't that the calculation that we make every time we willfully choose to plunge headlong into sin? But it is a disastrous word. And we need to, we need to pray that God would increase our apprehension, our, our ability to discern that it is a disaster it, it is intolerable. We cannot live if we do not have God. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do here, what I'm praying the Lord will do, is, is whatever it is for you that you're tempted to say, well, if I could have that, selling my soul for it, trading God to get it, wouldn't be such a loss. I am hoping and praying that your mind is beginning to move, that your affections will more and more begin to change so that increasingly, as you contemplate these things, as you think your way through this bargain, as you, as you, as you meditate on God, and as you experience His glory and goodness, increasingly you, you become someone who would never make that trade. 
Someone who sees what a disaster that would be. Someone who mourns over the fact that you have ever entered into that bargain. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Now, as I said, we need somebody like Moses. And in in verses 7 through 11, we get a little insight into how Moses was was able to intercede with God face-to-face for the people. And and in verse 7, we see, Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp. Uh, This tent is going to be referred to in this passage as a tent of meeting. And you may remember when we were in Exodus 25 through 31 that repeatedly the tabernacle the people were to build is also going to be referred to as the tent of meeting. But this tent, I don't think, is that tent. In other words, this is not the tabernacle. They haven't built that yet. The building of the tabernacle is going to be narrated in Exodus 35 through 40. This tent, apparently, is is a tent that Moses would set up outside the camp And then he would go outside the camp to this tent, and there he would meet with God. And it's interesting that it's as though God can't be in the camp. God can't be among the people in the tabernacle until the sacrifices are being offered, until the sacrificial system is in place. And so for Moses to meet with God, he can't meet with God among the sinful people because their sins aren't being dealt dealt with yet. And and it's as though if God were to come into the camp, if the tent were to be set up in the camp, the holiness of God would break out against these people and strike them dead. And so to prevent that, Moses takes this tent outside the camp, and and it's far off from the camp, and he called it there in verse 7, the tent of meeting. And then look at the next phrase of the verse. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. What a glorious thing that there are people who are seeking the Lord. These people know what's good for them. These people know what life is about. And and these people, Moses is out there, and God is speaking to Moses. And these people know, I need God. And so they're seeking the Lord and they're going out to Moses outside the camp to the tent. And then we read here in verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. I mean, imagine this scene. Moses is is proceeding perhaps through the the tents of the camp and everybody knows where he's going. And and maybe they hear him go by and they stand up and they come to the door and they watch him pass as he makes his way outside the camp going to this tent of meeting. All the people would rise up in the middle of verse 8, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. Can you imagine that? This, this pillar of fire and cloud that is going to, to this point has been leading Israel. They saw it. They saw it lead them through the Red Sea. They saw it lead them out to Mount Sinai, and then they watch Moses go out to the tent, and the pillar of cloud descends and stands there at the tent, and everybody knows God is meeting with Moses in the tent. And then look at the end of verse 9. It says, and the Lord would speak with Moses. This This is really the foundation of our hope. It's the fact that God has revealed himself. God revealed himself to Moses. God showed his ways to Moses. And as we're going to see uh, at the end of this passage, Moses is going to ask to see God's glory. And, And God is going to pass before Moses and explain himself. He's going to proclaim his own name. And we'll look at that passage, Lord willing, next week. And then as as Moses worships God, as he's in God's presence, he's experiencing what we declared in our call to worship this morning, Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant. And at the end of Exodus 34, we're going to read about how as as Moses was face to face with God, when he came down to the people, his face literally shone. He was radiant. And uh, this is also from our New Testament reading, this, this whole thing about how Moses would veil himself. But we Christians... 
with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. You know how we do that? We look into the Word. We experience God's revelation of Himself. We, we hear from God as we look into the Scriptures. That's where the glory of God is revealed to us. And, and with unveiled faces, we can draw near to God and we can experience what Moses is, or what's described here in Exodus 33, 9, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As we come to understand what the Scriptures mean, that's what happens for us. The Lord speaks with us. Now, this reference to the pillar of cloud in verse 9 is repeated in verse 10. When the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent. And then you remember how in verse 8 we saw how all the people would rise up and stand at their tent door. In the middle of verse 10 we read, All the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. What's happening here? What's happening is they are seeing the revelation of the glory of God. And, and they are understanding. God is revealing himself to Moses. God is telling Moses how we can be reconciled to him. God is explaining to Moses what we must do and who we must be if we are to be people who re-enter the presence of God as those who live outside of Eden. That, that's, that's, I think that's why the people are responding with worship because they understand what is being spoken to Moses. And then verse 11, I think this statement in verse 11 corresponds to that statement up in verse 7, everyone who sought the Lord, verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. That's amazing. This is a statement that says Moses had unparalleled intimacy with God. Now, don't, please don't misunderstand what this statement is saying. This does not mean that God literally has a face. Uh, John 4 tells us God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What's happening here is language that we understand in our, in our human creatureliness is being used to communicate something analogous about the way that we relate to one another and the way that God relates to us. So in the, in the same way that with a dear friend, look at the rest of the statement there, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. In the way that when you communicate with a dear friend, you communicate with them face to face. So also, there is something analogous to that in the way that God spoke to Moses. It's not literal. In other words, we, I don't think we should imagine God with a literal human face up in heaven somewhere. Nor is it univocal, which means there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between the way that we have faces and the way that God has a, has a face. But there is a real personal interaction that is happening. I think we should also note that what's happening is human language is being used for things that it can't really adequately describe. Human, in other words, um, human language is being pushed to its breaking point. And, and when this starts to happen, things are going to be said that almost seem contradictory, right? Because uh, look, at, look at verse 23 where the Lord tells Moses, I will take my hand, take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So at the end of this chapter, nobody can see God's face. But in verse 11, it's like God is speaking to Moses face to face. And, and again, I think the, the reason for these kinds of statements is that things are being communicated that really go beyond our experience. So... So we, we don't want to press these things and demand literal explanations from these things. I think we want to recognize, for instance, in the face-to-face -face description of God speaking to Moses, Moses had an unparalleled intimacy with God. And then in the no one can see my, or my face shall not be seen face in verse 23, I think we want to recognize there are aspects about God that no one can withstand, that no one can, can live through experiencing that are just too much for human capacity. I think that's, that's what's uh, being uh, communicated here. Now, with verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I, I want to remind you of both Psalm 34, 5, 
Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And the statement that was read in our Old Testament reading from Psalm 25, 14. Friendship or intimacy with the Lord is for those who fear him, and to them he makes known his covenant. Both of those verses, Psalm 34, 5, Psalm 25, 14, seem to be picking up on something about Moses in this passage. Moses came down the mountain with a radiant face. God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And in both of those verses, Psalm 34, 5, Psalm 25, uh, 14, it's as though David is saying, all the people of God can experience this. Now, I don't think that means, literally, that if you have your time with the Lord, worshiping him personally, your face is literally going to shine like Moses' did. But I do think it means that if you walk with God and you pursue the knowledge of God, you will be someone who is cheered and, and your, your refreshed and renewed spirit as a result of your worship will be evident. And it will be, not literally shining like Moses' was, but it will be like you are radiant. And then in the same way, Psalm 25, 14, I'm not saying you're going to have unparalleled access like Moses. I'm not saying that you're going to receive a new deposit of revelation and write a new Pentateuch. Please don't think that. Uh, if, if you think that, we need to talk. <laughs> we got problems. Uh, heresy is brewing. Don't think that. Um, however, if you walk with God and you study the scriptures closely and you understand them and you become someone who worships God, you really will be a friend of God. And, and it will be true of you that intimacy with God will be experienced by you. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And to them he makes known his covenant. You walk with God, you will find yourself experiencing ever deeper understanding of who God is, of, of what he's done for us in his love, of what his character is like. You will grow in your, in your knowledge of God. You really will be intimate with him. So I think it is stunning the way that the psalmist picks up these aspects of the experience of Moses, who is, I mean, there is nobody like Moses in Israel. And it's, a, it's as though David says, you can all have what Moses had. Your face can be radiant. You can be a friend of God. It's glorious. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. So Joshua's out there serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord, and maintaining, probably guarding, uh, the tent. Uh, in response to these verses, and, and really in response to everything that, that we've seen this, to this point, from verses 1 through 6, I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself, would I be grieved if I got all the promises of God, if I received the land of the promise, if the enemies were driven out, if I got the good land, but I lost the presence of God. Would that grieve me? And I hope your answer is yes. And then in response to verses 7 through 11, I would simply ask, are you seeking the Lord? Verse 7, everyone who sought the Lord, are you seeking the Lord? And we want to be people for whom it is said, absolutely, they're seeking the Lord. Absolutely, no question. Everything about them says God is what is most important to them. That's the kind of people we want to be. And we can see how important that is from verses 12 through 17, where in this passage, in, in mercy that is astonishing, mercy that is dumbfounding, mercy that... that just almost leaves you speechless in response to it, God promises his, his rest-giving presence to his people. Now, as we approach this passage, um, the ESV has paragraphed verses 12 through 16, and then they've started a new, a new paragraph in verse 17. And, and I think that's 
mistaken. And the reason I think that is mistaken is because of the phrase at the end of verse 17, where uh, Moses says to the Lord at the end of verse 7, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 12, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now look up at verse 17, or over at verse 17, and at the end of that verse it says, the Lord says to Moses, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Okay, those two clauses, favor in my sight, know you by name, they happen in verse 12 and verse 17, and I think they thereby bracket uh, verses 12 through 17 as a unit. So I'm going to treat them that way. So verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let, you, let me know whom you will send with me. Okay, so the Lord said, my angel will go with you. Back up in verse 2, I will send an angel before you. And Moses is now saying, well, you haven't told me who. You, you have not let me know here in verse 12 whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And uh, there's not a place prior to this in Genesis or Exodus where the Lord directly says to Moses, I know you by name. But if you think about the narrative of Exodus, I think that this statement, you have said, I know you by name, is recalling the way that you remember how when Moses was born, his parents saw that he was a fine child. And, and I think that what Moses means to communicate there is his parents somehow understood that the Lord was going to use him. And then you remember the circumstances of, of the way that he was put in the ark in the river, the basket of reeds in the river, and then the daughter of Pharaoh found him. And then in, in a remarkable turn of events, it winds up that his own mother gets to nurse him, being paid by the daughter of Pharaoh when he was supposed to be put to death. I mean, it's just amazing the way the Lord providentially worked out all those details. And I think in all of that, it's as though Lord, the Lord is saying to Moses, look at everything I've done for you. Look at, look at the way that I... I preserved your life at your birth. Look at the way that I raised you up in spite of all that potential adversity and danger and difficulty. I know you by name. And then that next clause, and you have also found favor in my sight. There's, there's another person earlier in the Bible of whom it was said that, that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord or he found favor in the Lord's Sight. And that's, that's Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. And, and this reference to Moses found, finding favor in God's sight, or literally grace in the Lord's eyes, I think is meant to associate Moses and Noah. And, and in the same way that, that the Lord saved Noah through the floodwaters, the Lord saved in an ark that was daubed with pitch, the Lord saved Moses through that basket which was daubed with pitch, and then in the same way that the Lord made a covenant with, with Noah after the flood, the Lord has now entered into a covenant with Moses. And, and, and then other people were also saved because of Noah's faith and the people with him on the ark. And now the whole nation of Israel has been saved with, with Moses. So there are these, these important similarities between Noah and Moses, both of whom found favor in the Lord's sight and... and um, uh, the, this communicates to us that both Noah and Moses, in, in, in the nature of their experience, are prefiguring the Lord Jesus, who, who, like Noah and Moses, would live in such a way that other people would be saved through him. So Moses says to the Lord, here in verse 12, You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And now Moses is going to make this request in verse 13. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. And I, I, I want to encourage you to fixate on that request. Show me now your ways. And I would remind you of what we saw in Psalm 25. I think that David has paid careful attention to this passage that we're looking at. And in Psalm 25, verse 4, he prays, Make me to know your ways. And earlier in the Psalter, Psalm 1, verse 6, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Um, Psalm 2, Therefore, 
Therefore, O kings, be warned, be wise, you rulers of the earth. And then a few, few words later, he says, um, lest you perish in the way. So there's a way that's going to lead to destruction, and then there's the Lord's way. And Moses is saying, show me now your ways. I think what, what Moses is ultimately asking is something like this. Lord, show me the way back into the Garden of Eden, and then show me how to live in the Garden of Eden in a way that won't get me kicked out again. So, so I think this is ultimately what Moses is after. How do I live in your presence? How do I enjoy where you are? How do I cultivate the kinds of, of desires, the kinds of affections, the kinds of longings that result in me doing what is pleasing to you rather than that result in the things that are displeasing to you, which result in a separation between me and you. Verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you. If you were, if you were where Moses is, if you were speaking face to face with God, is this what you would ask for? Is, is this where your heart would go? I want to know your ways that I may know you. There is nobody on earth that knows God like Moses knows God at this point in human history. Jesus hasn't become incarnate yet. And, and nobody else in the world has spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai with God in his presence hearing from him. And I think that that experience of God has resulted in Moses simply wanting more of God. He wants to know God's ways. He wants to know God. Moses has rightly discerned, rightly perceived that there is nothing like God. There is none that compare with him. And there is nothing so satisfying, nothing so desirable, nothing so rewarding, nothing more full of promise than God himself. Show me now your ways, verse 13, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Well, he already has that, doesn't he? Yes, but what else, did he, what else could he want? What he wants is to have grace in God's eyes. And this calls to mind those glorious words of Romans 5. Having, therefore, been justified by faith, we have peace with God, and access into this grace in which we now stand. If, if you're here this morning and, and the words that I just spoke don't have any significance in your heart, you, you don't know what justification is, please talk to somebody after the service. Talk to me, talk to the person sitting next to you, talk to somebody who can help you at least understand what it looks like to be justified by grace through faith so that you stand in God's grace. Moses says, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor, grace, in your sight, in your eyes. And then he says, consider too that this nation is your people. And, you know, Moses and God have been kind of having this back and forth, right? Where the Lord, he, he, he says, Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt, they've corrupted their way and made this calf. And then as Moses intercedes with God, with God, he says, oh, no, Lord, they're not my people. They're your people. And I didn't bring them out of Egypt. You brought them out of Egypt. And then it's like the Lord comes back to Moses, as we saw just a moment ago, and he says, you're, go ahead and take this, your people. Go ahead and take them up to the land of promise. And now Moses once again is saying, Lord, look. And, and, and literally, the Hebrew, the Hebrew that's rendered consider here is the same word that's rendered see in verse 12. Look, see. This nation is your people. And then, this is amazing. I mean, God is, God is omniscient. God is God. There, there, is no, there is no lack of wisdom in God. There's no lack of foresight in God. There, there is no lack of anything. He's, every, he's omni-everything. And he says in response to Moses in verse 14, My presence will go with you. I think if this teaches anything to us, it should teach us 
that we should always seek God's mercy. No one, no one who is alive is beyond God's mercy. No one living is beyond God's mercy. If there's somebody in your life that you've given up on, let me encourage you to look at this passage in which God says, I'm not going up with them, Moses. You take them on into the land of promise. And Moses says, oh no, please, Lord. They're your people. And the Lord says, my presence will go with you. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's mercy. His arm is not too short to save. And these words are just so beautiful. Verse 14, he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. This, this recalls, I think, places, passages like Genesis 5.29, where Lamech says, at the birth of Noah. You know, it's, Genesis 5 is this long genealogy of, from Adam down to Noah, and it, it's got this awful refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. And finally, this guy Lamech gives birth to, or he, he, he begets Noah, and Noah is born, and at his birth, Lamech says, this one will give us relief from our painful toil on the ground, which the Lord has cursed. And in those words in Genesis 5.29, he uses terminology and phrases from Genesis 3.17 through 19. And it's like he's hoping that Noah is going to be the seed of the woman who's going to bring about a, a rollback of the curses, which I think is what Moses is communicating, Lamech wants, uh, wants to communicate. And, and again, Noah is anticipating the one who's actually going to achieve all that. But they're looking for relief. They're looking for rest. They're looking for that, that experience of the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Verse 14, he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And, and we can, th- you know, Augustine and many others have said things like, Our hearts have no rest until they find their rest in you, Lord. And Moses, Moses understands what life is about. Moses understands that it would be better to be in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, where you have no reliable food source and you have no reliable water source. If you're going to eat, you're going to need manna from heaven. If you're going to drink, you're going to need God to break open a rock and provide miracle water. Moses understands that that is a better place to be with God than in a land flowing with milk and honey without him. Look at verse 15. He said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. It's like Moses is saying, If you're not going with us, we're not going. Where you are is where we want to be. And then Moses is communicating, I think, that he understands that it's God's ways, verse 13, show me now your ways, it's God's ways that will distinguish Israel. So verse 16, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of of the earth. And really, this is going to be the function of the law of Moses in the life of Israel. It's the law of Moses that in Deuteronomy 4.6, Moses says of the law, when, when, when the nations see you living out the law, they will say in response, what a great and wise and understanding people. Who else is like this? Who else has this kind of wisdom than, other than Israel? And it's God and his revelation of himself that makes them that way. And in verse 17, again, the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And that's the conclusion of that unit. And in response to that unit, I just want to say this. Communion with God makes God's people distinct. Communion with God. And by communion with God, I mean... You finding a way to hear from God. And and look, the way is right here. It's in the scriptures. If you want to know where God has revealed himself, this this is the answer. God has revealed himself in nature, but he's also given us special revelation in the scriptures so that we rightly understand the creation. So we we soak ourselves in God's revelation of himself in the scriptures, 
And thereby we come to enjoy God's presence. And thereby we commune with God. And that marks us out as distinct from all the peoples of the earth. And, and my hope and prayer is that all of us will increasingly desire more to commune with God and less to make the bargain of, I'd rather have that even at the expense of God. We, we want to be people who know what Moses knows. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I want to be where you are, Lord. Now, before we read the next verses, in verses 18 through 23, let me just, let me just stop and ask you, if you were in Moses' place, what would you say at this point? I mean, God, God has just granted this, this really audacious request that Moses has made. If, if you're not going with us, don't send us up. After the Lord said, I'm not going with you. And, and Moses intercedes with God for the people. And the Lord, the Lord grants Moses' request. He, he extends his mercy to this stiff-necked people. What would you say to God at this moment? And what Moses says should be instructive for us. Because again, there is nobody who has experienced more glory from God than Moses. There is nobody who has seen more of God than Moses. Moses has been on the mountain with God 40 days, 40 nights. He's been experiencing him. And in verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. It's, it's almost like Moses is saying, To me to live is Christ. Please show me your glory. What I want, God, is more of you. And then the Lord grants the request, verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now, uh, next week, Lord willing, we will look at Exodus 34, where the Lord actually enacts the doing, the granting of the request. But, but here, I, I want to note that the Lord, Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, and the Lord says, okay, Moses, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you. And I think that means that you can put an equal sign between God's glory and his goodness. Same thing. I will, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And I would do another equal sign. Glory, goodness, name. All communicating God's glory. All showing forth God's glory. And then the Lord says in the middle of verse 19, and it's, it's, as though, it's as though at this point I think the Lord wants to say to Moses, Moses, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't want you to think that I owe you this mercy. I want you to be clear on the fact that what I'm giving you is mercy. It is grace. So he says to him there in the middle of verse 19, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And this says to all of us, God doesn't owe mercy to anybody. It is God's own prerogative to decide who gets the mercy, who gets the revelation. And then in verse 20 he says, but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, um, back up in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now here in verse 20, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So what the Lord's going to do in the next chapter is he's going to pass by Moses and it's, a, it's like he defines himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who, uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, and then he speaks of how he visits um, the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children, uh, and, and he extends mercy and compassion to thousands of generations. So the Lord is going to pass by and define himself and here he's speaking of that as making his glory and his goodness and, and proclaiming his name. This is what he's going to do 
for Moses. Verse 23, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And again, I don't think we should take this literally as though, as though God is a person with a limited front side and a limited back side that he's going to show to Moses. Rather, again, I think what the Lord is saying is, uh, I'm, I'm going to reveal true things about myself, but they're only partial things. And, and you can't see everything there is about me. You can't see my face. You, you, can't, you can't sustain it. Your, your system would be overloaded, and there would be a short circuit of your capacities, and, and you would die if I revealed myself to you in fullness. And in response to these verses, we should all respond to the Lord with the words, there is none like you. There is none like you. There is no one like our God in the heavens above or, or in the earth beneath. There is none like him. We, we should respond with a commitment to, to resolve not to give way to that sell-your-soul bargain. It's not worth it. We should resolve in our hearts to seek the Lord because there's none like Him. And, and we should resolve in our hearts to be those of whom it can be said, communion with God is what makes God's people distinct. You know, they, they said of the apostles in Acts 4 that, that they could tell that these are men who had been with Jesus. Those are the kind of people we want to be. We want to be people who walk with God so that our speech is seasoned with, with salt. We want to be people who commune with God so that for us it's instinctive to, to hear something like what Paul says in Ephesians 5.1 and resonate with it. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And, and we want to be people who know the truth that John communicates in John 17. Three. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would transform us by your glory. Work in our hearts through your word, by the power of your spirit, that it might be said of us that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, would you so satisfy us with your loving kindness that we really are glad and rejoice in you all the day? Would you make it, Lord, that, that we know that fullness of joy is in your presence because you have made known to us the paths of life. Lord, cause us to live in such a way that, that your nearness really is our good. Be our shield, our very great reward. Help us to walk by faith, cause faith to work through love, cause us to be people who know you. And Lord, we pray that your presence would go